Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the lands we record this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, as well as the Wanarua and the Gamilaroi people. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. On behalf of the Australian Labor Party, I commit to the Uluru Statement from the heart. With the arrival of a new Labor government, there are some promises that many had been waiting a long time to see achieved. We may finally see a federal anti-corruption commission. The Moragapan family have finally been allowed to return home to Bilawila. But there's one group who've been waiting more than 200 years for this day. Pat was talking about what it was like for her as a young person to walk into the room where Lowitja had already opened the door and was leading the way. And everything she was describing about her experience with Lowitja was exactly how I felt with my experience with Pat. And so I kind of put it in the context of just how long we have been working at this, but also it's very hard to think about giving up when you look to people like Pat and Lowitja and those people that have been leading the way. Today, we're looking at the promise by the Albanese government to push forward with the Uluru Statement from the Heart and what it will really look like for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to have a voice in Canberra. Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. Five years ago, on the 26th of May 2017, in the shadow of Uluru, 250 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders signed a canvas that held the words they would deliver to the people of Australia. On that canvas was a statement of passion, of grief, of hope, of challenge. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination to supervise a process of agreement-making between governments and First Nations 
and truth-telling about our history. That's Referendum Council Member Megan Davis presenting the Uluru Statement from the Heart at the closing ceremony in Mutajulu. That statement was gifted, not to the government, but to the entire nation. It's an invitation to you, to me, to all people who call Australia home, asking for you to walk with First Nations people. It calls for constitutional reform to give First Nations people a voice in government, to allow them to give input into decisions made in the halls of power that directly affect them. Constitutional reform means that the decision on whether to include Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices is ours to make by way of a referendum. That would then be backed up with a Makarrata Commission on Treaty and Truth-Telling. But when it was introduced to the Turnbull government back in 2017, Cabinet rejected it, saying it's neither desirable or capable of winning acceptance at referendum. The then Prime Minister said that the voice to Parliament would inevitably be seen as a third chamber of Parliament and that the Referendum Council provided no guidance as to how this new representative assembly would be elected or how the diversity of Indigenous circumstance and experience could be fairly or democratically represented. This sentiment would be backed up by the next Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. In 2022, with Labor now in government, the new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, made these comments in his speech just moments after being told he'd won the federal election. Together, we can embrace the Uluru Statement from the Heart. We can answer its patient, gracious call for a voice enshrined in our constitution. So what does it look like to have a First Nations voice to Parliament? Will it actually be like that third chamber Malcolm Turnbull and his colleagues were so concerned about? Eddie Sinet is a Womba Womba First Nations man who writes about Indigenous experience at the intersections of law, culture and society, exploring how these different fields impact upon and affect different representations of Indigenous peoples. He's an Indigenous academic, lawyer and researcher with the Griffith Law School and the Indigenous Law Centre, University of New South Wales. He was also present during the First Nations Constitutional Convention that led to the signing of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Eddie, is there any validity to that argument that the Turnbull and then Morrison governments upheld that the statement would lead to that third chamber in Parliament? The very simple answer is no. There is no validity in the argument about it being a third chamber. Parliament still remains Parliament in the way that it operates with the two chambers, the House of Representatives and the Senate. It's not a change to that. It would simply be this kind of permanent institutional mechanism for Indigenous people to be able to provide advice. Symbolically and practically very powerful in the sense that it finally provides recognition to Indigenous peoples that you know should have been done a long time ago, but it also provides that practical part of actually being able to influence the decision-making, but not actually taking on the decision-making itself, which would still be the role of Parliament. Why is enshrining First Nations voices constitutionally an important step compared to, say, increased government consultation? We've had that before. We have that all the time. The government says that they do that now, and we still face the dire kind of socioeconomic health outcome, all of the different circumstances that we face in our community. There's also the point that different advisory bodies have been set up over time for the government of the day to just come along and get rid of them. So there's no permanency to the relationship. And then there's also, I guess, the foundational point too, that 
Indigenous issues just aren't any other issue. Indigenous peoples have legitimate claims as political and cultural entities that predate the Australian state and continue to exist today. So things like native title are based in that recognition as well. And in other jurisdictions or other countries around the world, those things were done originally through a treaty or through similar type of arrangements. But because we didn't do that here and because we now have the constitution that is the foundation of our legal and political authority in this country, that's why it's so important that that relationship be both recognised and founded in, in what our nation's foundation document is. Now, Eddie, not all First Nations people are backing the statement. There's a lot of conversations around who was allowed to be involved, who was invited, and I know that that is a messy area because there's opinions in there and people who are saying one thing and some people who are saying another. I was reading a statement from somebody who said, look, it shouldn't be up to First Nations people to become part of Australia. Australia should be coming a part of the First Nations. How do you respond to that? That's just not a reality that we face. Like I said, no matter how strongly we believe that as First Nations, I can prove that the reality that we face is that the Australian state or nation now exists and that the constitution and parliament will be paramount regardless. Along with that argument, a lot of people point to the international community and say that we can get the international community to help supervise treaty arrangements and stuff like that. That international community is authorised by states like Australia. And so even UNDRIP, the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that a lot of people point to, the last couple of lines of that document say that it occurs within the context of the nation state and it doesn't take away from the nation state. So Indigenous peoples don't, according to that system, don't have international legal personality. Uh, We're not the same as a state. Whatever we do here and whatever we negotiate will have to occur within the context of the Australian state. So some people will be willing, or sorry, unwilling to ever accept that, but that is the reality that we face. So what that means, and that goes back to this issue about voice and treaty, is that a treaty is not going to be able to deliver on a lot of the expectations that people have. It doesn't mean those expectations aren't legitimate, such as enforcing Indigenous laws, customs, traditions, getting land back, getting reparations, all of those kind of things that you expect as a treaty. But what it does mean is that we have to look at about how we go about enforcing those and having those protected. So that's where the voice becomes very important and then a treaty later on. Not everyone's going to agree, but as is the case, and it often happens a lot more in Indigenous issues, these kind of divisions are picked up and made much more out of them what they are as a way of stimming you know, reform and sticking to the status quo. And so I'm not saying that's what people are doing by being concerned and wanting to listen to Indigenous peoples. But at the same time, I think a lot more is made out of some of these divisions and making them much more representative than perhaps what they actually are. We may be at a moment in time where the relationship between First Nations and colonial Australians come together. But will it really be the moment for change we've so long been trying to achieve? Many previous governments have tried to strike a balance between colonial interests and First Nations needs, but it hasn't led to the equality those who've tried previously to achieve. Associate Professor Alison Holland is a leading researcher in Australian Indigenous history in the 20th century, with a focus on rights discourses, race, colonialism and humanitarianism based at Macquarie University. Alison, do you see this as a pivotal moment in Australian history? Absolutely. We definitely are. There's been a long backstory, I think, to this moment. And I think that it's historic in the sense that for Indigenous peoples, they've been waiting, well, at least 
since 2017 when they actually wrote and delivered the Uluru Statement from the Heart. But of course, it's a lot longer still beyond that. So I think it's very historic for them to have a government, a federal government, actually come to power and actually say first up that we will commit in full to the Uluru Statement from the Heart is really quite amazing. I think more than that, when Anthony Albanese gave his victory speech, he said that we have to appreciate that we have the oldest living culture in the world and that this is something that we have to value. This was a very, very respectful comment from a Prime Minister who just become the Prime Minister of Australia. It has never happened before. And also, of course, noting that the way in which the Uluru Statement from the Heart was what he called a very sort of patient act of generosity. And again, that for me was very resounding because to have that come out of the mouth of a person who's just been voted the Prime Minister as almost the very first thing he said was deeply, deeply historic. Like it's just, it's never happened before. I think there's still a long way to go, but I do think that, you know, the the creators of the Uluru Statement from the Heart just before the election campaign issued their own kind of campaign to remind voters about the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And the tagline was, history is calling. Now, you've mentioned some of the things that the new Prime Minister has said that are quite historic at this point, but is there concern that it will be again sort of more talk and no action, especially we saw back in 2008 when Prime Minister Rand apologised to the stolen generations. It was such a milestone moment, but we don't seem to have made significant progress since then. Is there a worry that this might end up being the same? Yeah, I mean, I can only speak for myself as a historian who's sort of worked in this space, and I can definitely say that there is a absolute concern of that. People will be watching. People will be waiting for these things to be delivered. I mean, obviously, it's a long road to go. I mean, there's a there's an issue around bipartisan approval, you know, I mean, for the referendum to be delivered that puts the question to the Australian public about whether there should be a constitutional Indigenous voice to Parliament. My understanding of that is that it has to be a majority. So there is some time to go and there's still some negotiation to do. But Albanese and his, and his team were voted in on a set of actionable platforms and things that they said they were going to do, they must now deliver. How does this move differ from the history of First Nations interaction with Australian governments? We've had the referendum in the 1960s. We've had many representative committees and groups come through Australian politics in hopes that there would be a bigger voice for First Nations people in Parliament. How does this differ from all of the efforts that we've done in the past? This feels different because the Indigenous people have so clearly articulated their own agenda, voice, treaty, truth. And I feel as though in this election, Albanese and the Labor team have genuinely listened and are prepared to meet Indigenous people. This is a really important point because this is what the people who were behind the Uluru Statement and all the signatories, this idea of partnership, a meeting of peoples, it was absolutely central to the Uluru Statement, to the language of the Uluru Statement and to the intent. So even just using that language, he's, he uses the language of partnership, he uses the language of collaboration. In his victory speech, He talked. I think he even used that word, collaboration and partnership. This is signalling some important 
things about we've heard you, we've we've actually bothered to sit down and look at this and listen. There has been a very long set of attempts at implementing something that is meaningful for Indigenous people. There's no doubt about it. We have to acknowledge that there has been attempts, but they often go down in a sort of language of failure. So we sort of throw the blanket over it and we move on and we try again. I think we really need to understand where Indigenous people have succeeded in their own governing structures, and it's something we really have to understand. The final paragraph of the Uluru Statement from the Heart is a plea to you. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard, and we invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Now, we wait to see how the Albanese government moves ahead with this. But at some stage, the choice will be handed to you. It's up to you whether to say yes or no to walking with First Nations people and giving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people a voice in the country they've called home for 60,000 more years than those who colonised her. This episode of The Quickie was produced by myself, Claire Murphy, and our executive producer, Siobhan Moran-McFarlane, with audio production by Jacob Round. We've all heard the daunting and horrifying birth stories that have circulated our friendship groups. But what's a normal birth look like? Well, it turns out there isn't one. Listen to Jessie Stevens speak to eight different women about eight different births in Mamma Mia's podcast, The Delivery Room. Giving birth is like... Tugging, yeah, it's the best word for it. For me, it was like a hook in your cervix and just pulling it out. Painful, period, like cramping, very low. I don't have any negative memories combination of the bad period with the pain in the back as well as the pain running down your legs and it's everything at once. Check out The Delivery Room wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was made by Mamma Mia, the only women's media company in Australia. If you love the show, the best thing you can do is become a Mamma Mia subscriber. Mamma Mia subscribers get access to every podcast, exclusive videos and all the great articles on Mamma Mia. It only costs $5.75 a month, which is less than a large coffee or a small coffee if you get oat milk. If you believe in women's media, if you believe in a purpose-driven media company like Mamma Mia, whose core purpose is to make the world a better place for women and girls, please see the link in our show notes.